Pope Leo XIII once said, nothing is more useful than to look upon the world as it really is, and at the same time to seek elsewhere for the solace to its trouble. Welcome to the 63rd episode of St. Dimpna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health, because while it's important to avoid over-spiritualizing our mental health, it's also vital to remember the role faith plays in our well-being. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mention. First up, with the weather turning cold all of a sudden, it's good to talk about our mental health and the change in the seasons. Let's get started with some background from KSTP.com. As temperature gets colder and days get gloomier, symptoms of seasonal affective disorder, better known as SAD, start to kick in. While some can get over it by a refreshing walk outside, even when it's gloomy and cold, others deal with more severe symptoms that can lead to harming themselves. Spotting symptoms early can make a big difference as one can adjust their winter habits to help with minor symptoms including having low energy and not being very hopeful about getting better exercise can help and even though there isn't as much sunlight during these times get as much as you can even when it's gloomy with more moderate to severe symptoms of depression take talking to your primary care provider or talking with a mental health professional is recommended light therapy is also an option you might have heard about the lack of melatonin and vitamin D we usually get from sunlight can lead to SAD or SAD, and light boxes have been known to help. So seasonal affective disorder is much more common than many of us realize, and one of the keys is paying attention to our fluctuations in mood, energy, motivation, our sliding toward apathy, etc., and to reach out for help as soon as we notice these changes. Once we have someone walking alongside us, helping us to learn coping skills or even prescribing medication if needed, we stand a much better chance of making it through the winter months with our emotional wellness intact. On to the next topic, doom scrolling and how it's hurting us. Let's start with some info from the StarTribune.com. Your phone alarm goes off at 6 a.m. You check some news sites and Facebook. It's bad news after bad news. Coronavirus cases keep climbing, and so do deaths. Children might not be able to go back to school. Your favorite restaurant has gone out of business. Everything is awful. The world, as we remember it, has ended. Next thing you know, it's 9 a.m. You haven't climbed out of the pit of despair to even shower. You repeat this masochistic exercise during your lunch break and again while getting ready for bed. This experience of sinking into emotional quicksand while binging on doom and gloom news has become so common that there's an internet lingo for it, doom scrolling. Doom scrolling combined with screen addiction could take a significant toll on our mental and physical well-being, according to health experts. The activity can make us angry, anxious, depressed, unproductive, and less connected with our loved ones and ourselves. I mean, we all do it, right? Perhaps even earlier today, we scrolled through depressing news or awful takes. We follow accounts that drive us mad. We click on that little button that stands between us and an account that we've blocked or muted in the past. Why do we click it? And why do we keep doing it even though we realize it's bad for us? We go back to the Star Tribune for some ideas on how to break free. First, create a plan to control your time. To resist informo- uh, information binging, we can create a plan to control how much 
much we consume, similar to how people can create a dieting plan to eat healthier, right? Step one is to acknowledge the burden that doom scrolling creates for our health. We have to realize that we don't want to live life in a hamster wheel of a complete news consumption. Step two is to create a realistic plan that we can stick with and repeat until it forms a habit. Creating a schedule is an effective approach. So start by making a calendar of appointments for everything from mundane activities like taking a walk outside to business matters like video conferencing meetings. Everything. Set aside certain times of the day to read the news. You can set a 10-minute timer to remind you to stop scrolling. Another trick is to wear a rubber band around your hand while reading the news. And when you believe you are succumbing to doom scrolling, snap the rubber band against your wrist. It's also important to rethink breaks. Stuck at home, browsing the web has become our default work break. Instead of uh, staying glued to a screen, take a walk around the block, hop on an exercise bike, prepare your favorite snack, and yes, set calendar appointments even for your breaks. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to share a little bit about St. Martin de Porres. Born in 1579 in Peru, Martin was the illegitimate son of a Spanish nobleman and a formerly enslaved woman of African and native descent. Two years after he was born, Martin's father abandoned the family and his mother supported the children by running a small laundry business. Martin grew up in poverty, and when his mother could not support him, Martin was sent to a primary school for two years and then placed with a barber, who was also a medical provider, which was common at the time, to learn the medical arts. It was during this time that he started spending more and more time in prayer at night, and he began to feel called to religious life. However, under the law of Peru, descendants of Africans and Native Americans were barred from becoming full members of religious orders. This led to him being accepted by the Dominicans as a donado, or volunteer, who performed menial tasks around the monastery in return for the privilege of wearing the habit and living with the community. His story is an incredible one of a holy man living perfectly the virtues of humility, love for his fellow sisters and brothers, love for the poor, and a desire for social justice. And he's a saint that you just have to get to know better and bring into your close circle of canonized friends. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. To you, St. Martin de Porras, we prayerfully lift up our hearts filled with serene confidence and devotion. Mindful of your unbounded and helpful charity to all levels of society, and also of your meekness and humility of heart, we offer our petitions to you. Pour out upon our families the precious gifts of your solicitous and generous intercession. Show to the people of every race the paths of unity and justice. Implore from our Father in heaven the coming of his kingdom, so that through mutual benevolence in God, men may increase the fruits of grace and merit the rewards of eternal life. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter Therapy. (music) 
Leslie gets us started. You recommend journaling to help kind of keep track of things, but I've always struggled with journaling as a focus on my failures and self-criticism. I struggle to find the balance between self-reflection and self-loathing, and I feel most of the time when I try to engage in self-reflection, it's warped. And I don't know how much of it is internalized angst or aggression or whatever, and I don't know how to identify helpful and healthy thoughts versus things tearing me down. All that to say, how do I journal productively without making it a self-obsessive critique? Leslie, thank you so much for sending this question in. And let's all start by praying for Leslie and all of us who struggle with the balance between self-reflection and self-loathing, both in journaling and in life in general. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So full disclosure, journaling has always been hard for me as well. So I want you to know that you aren't alone. But if you feel committed to wanting to make journaling work for you, here's some ideas from tinybuddha.com. First, cheerleading. Cheerleading is a simple journaling practice that takes a negative self-belief and turns it into an accepting and self-compassionate statement. So here's an example. Ne a negative statement would be, I hate my stomach. I hate the way it bulges when I sit down and the way it hangs over my favorite jeans. But a cheerleading statement would say, I accept my stomach and accept the way that it looks right now. Any desire to change it comes from wanting the best for my health and not from a sense of not being good enough. So you can see how this sort of uh, cheerleading statement can help reframe things into a healthier way of thinking. Number two, dialogue. Our inner critics are capable of dishing out some seriously harsh criticism, but they're there for a reason. Although it might not be immediately obvious, all of our internal voices are working in their own way to protect us even the inner critic, because it's really trying to protect us. The more we try to ignore and repress our inner critic, the louder it becomes. One way we can calm this voice is to talk to it and write out the conversation. When doing this, you might find it helpful to bring forward a nurturing internal voice to act as a mediator. Start by asking your inner critic to tell you more about a particular statement it made recently, or with a more general dialogue about your feelings. The aim of this is to start a constructive conversation that helps you understand and even empathize with your inner critic's motivations. Number three is called retrospect. Retrospecting involves reading back over our past journaling notes and looking at patterns, language, themes, and underlying beliefs. This activity is best done weeks or months after writing an entry, so enough time has passed that you can read it with a more objective eye. And then consider the following questions. Does your inner critic sound like anyone you know? Does it have any recurring complaints? Is there any kind of truth to the critic's complaints? Is there evidence that counters the critic? What do you think your critic is trying to protect you from? Number four, strengthen your other internal voices. So our inner critics are here to stay and they will not disappear anytime soon. One way to balance out our internal dialogue is to make the critic comparatively quieter by strengthening and nurturing our other internal dialogue. Beginning this process through journaling helps us strengthen this voice in writing with the aim that one day we'll be able to shift the process to real time and have a compassionate 
empathic response counteracting the inner critic's complaints. The parts of our internal dialogue are like muscles. The more we use them, the stronger they become. So developing a supportive, empathic dialogue comes with consistent practice over time. With conscious care and attention, however, it is possible to shift our internal dialogue from criticism and blame to empathy and acceptance. Before I move on, I think it's also important to remember and realize that we aren't going to find every coping skill out there helpful. Different coping skills work for different people, and perhaps if we've tried journaling, tried these techniques to calm our inner critic, and still find it isn't working, it might be a sign that the search for a better coping skill for ourselves might be a good next step. Anonymous is up next. I'm struggling with the idea that the priority for 911 calls needs to be the person in crisis rather than the people who were so concerned for their own or other safety that they called the police in the first place. For people uh, who have suffered trauma at the hands of those who have mental health problems but not sought treatment, 911 can be a last resort when we're afraid of our safety and nothing else has helped. How do we include these people in the discussion about the improvements we need to make and how our society handles mental health crises? Let's all join together in prayer for Anonymous and everyone who finds themselves facing a crisis situation with a loved one, everyone who feels a lack of support in a time where they need that support the most. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This is such an important topic because so often parents, loved ones, uh, and those put in traumatizing situations watch as their loved one is taken to inpatient treatment after a crisis call, and then there's so little available to support the parent, loved one, family member in the aftermath to, to guide them in knowing what to do. I think it's absolutely vital for all of us to stand up and work to create different groups for people to turn to after that kind of a moment. So many of us don't know what to do. We feel lost, alone, and don't know where to turn. It can be confusing, and it can just be flat-out traumatizing. And while we feel relieved that our loved one is finally getting the treatment they need, we need help ourselves to be able to understand what happened, find some relief from the trauma of what happened, and prepare ourselves to welcome our loved one back into an environment that is healthy and focused on everyone's wellness. I have to give a shout out here to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, because they are the ones doing the best work when it comes to this. I would recommend checking out NAMI.org and clicking on Your Journey and then Family Members and Caregivers and looking into the resources there especially the page on taking care of yourself. Here's a little sample. Caregivers who pay attention to their own physical and emotional health are better able to handle the challenges of supporting someone with mental illness. They adapt to changes, build strong relationships, and recover from setbacks. The ups and downs in your family member's illness can have a huge impact on you. Improving your relationship with yourself by maintaining your physical and mental health makes you more resilient helping you weather the hard times and enjoy the good ones. And then it goes on to provide more information about how to take care of yourself uh, when trying to take care of a loved one with chronic and persistent mental illness. It's 100% worth checking out. Courtney wraps us up today. As a parent of a college kid, what can parents far away from their kids do to help those possibly struggling with depression? My son and I had a very open conversation about mental health as two kids from his university committed suicide within the last week. But having my own anxiety and depression issues the last year, I have been able to talk to him from a place of experience. How can we as parents 
better prepare our kids for going off to college to deal with mental health? This is a fantastic question, and let's let's start by joining in prayer together. Uh, first, for those two classmates who committed suicide within the last week, may their souls be with God in heaven. Please, Lord, make it so. Um, let's also pray for all of our children who are off on their way to college, that their guardian angel may protect them. And for most of us parents here, that our guardian angels will do the same for us. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side to light and guard, to rule and guide. Amen. I first have to say what a blessing it is that you've been having these conversations with your son. It really shows that you are exactly the kind of parent he needs, especially at a time when mental health symptoms tend to come up in our lives, right? Let's get some ideas here from McLean Hospital, a Harvard Medical School affiliate. The late teens and early 20s, the traditional college years, are known to be the time in life when serious mental illnesses are most likely to manifest themselves. Combine that with being away from home for the first time and adjusting to other aspects of college life, and together, it can be a recipe for psychological vulnerability for many students. The college years become a critical time for students and parents to have a mental health checklist. So let's do this. Number one, prepare your child. It's very likely that your child or one of her roommates or friends will encounter a mental health issue while they are away at college. Talk openly with your child about mental health. Let them know that they are not alone. Keeping lines of communication open is very important, and this will help them to feel comfortable that they can come to you with any problems they may experience without fear of being judged. Next, have a plan. All students, but particularly those who have already experienced mental health issues, should have a plan in place in case things get too difficult to handle. If your child's already under the care of a psychiatrist or psychologist or therapist, make plans to continue that care with a clinician closer to the college. Your local mental health care provider should be able to help you with that. Have regular check-ins with family members and friends to discuss any changes in your child's behavior. Make an appointment with the campus mental health center to determine what services are available. Um, students can pre-register for disability support services to access helpful accommodations, so that's something people should definitely check out. Next, stay in touch. Make time for regular phone conversations with your college-aged child. Don't limit your communications to emails and texts. It's easier to detect when something is bothering them by listening to their voice than it is to interpret their mood via a text message. Keep an eye out for symptoms of depression, including sadness, anxiety, hopelessness, irritability, restlessness, sleep difficulties, loss of appetite, suicidal thoughts, unexplained aches and pains, and crying spells. A sudden drop in academic performance can also be another sign that support might be needed. Next, please, please forget stigma. Don't let stigma stand in the way of your child getting help. If your child is experiencing mental health issues, prioritize getting help over the fear of tarnishing their transcript or reputation. Next, encourage healthy habits. It's easy to let good eating, sleep, and exercise fall by the wayside while living away from home for the first time. Many students sacrifice physical health for an extra hour of studying or staying out with friends. The importance of a healthy diet, adequate sleep, and regular exercise cannot be overstated, particularly as they relate to our overall mental health. So avoid lecturing your student about eating vegetables and instead ask them how they feel when they eat well. Uh, ask them how they feel when they sleep poorly. This will help them connect self-care with emotional stability. And last, you know, and maybe one of the really important things here is allow mistakes. Perfection is not a realistic goal. It's important to let your child know that you support them no matter what. 
Mistakes are an unavoidable part of life, and we can learn from them. A perfect GPA isn't worth it if it comes at the expense of your child's emotional well-being. All right, we'll be praying for you. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.